Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Ranjit S. Shima, MD. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. Shima is here with us today to discuss his article, Improved Outcomes for Stem Cell Transplant Recipients Requiring Pediatric Intensive Care, published in the November 2012 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here, Dr. Shima. Thank you. Dr. Shima, would you please start by giving us some background for your study and what led you to do this study? So uh, we at Cincinnati, being a large transplant center, specifically bone marrow transplant center, have been curious as to what the outcomes for these patients are specifically the cohort that require intensive care following their transplant. Uh, historically, uh, outcomes for these children who require intensive care for critical illness following stem cell transplant have been very poor. And uh, all the data, published data, in regards to this topic ha- is uh, a bit dated now. And the vast majority of studies that have been published uh, utilize uh, cohorts of stem cell transplant patients either from the 90s or the early 2000s. And uh, there were no recent studies that had looked at outcomes uh, for stem cell transplant patients under needing intensive care uh, for patients after the year 2004. So we felt that it was time for us to assess the outcomes for these patients uh, and to try and figure out as to how these patients are doing if they required intensive care for critical illness following a bone marrow transplant. So that was the basic impetus for this study, is to have a contemporary cohort of stem cell transplant patients and to assess their outcomes once they required intensive care. So what did you do in this study? How did you carry it out? So we um, studied patients uh, who were admitted to our ICU, a pediatric intensive care unit at Cincinnati Children's Hospital between uh, the July 2004 and January, uh, June 2010. So it turned out to be a six-year period. And we chose 2004 because published data in the current literature is up to 2004. That's why we chose these dates. And over this six-year period, we uh, looked at outcomes for all stem cell transplant patients who underwent stem cell transplant during the same period. So we did not include patients who had had a stem cell transplant, say, in 99 or 2000, because we really wanted to see the effect of current transplant practices as well as intensive care on outcomes. Uh, we excluded all patients who had undergone transplant prior to uh, these dates, prior to uh, July 2004, and also all patients who came to us having had stem cell transplants at other centers. And there were very few patients like that. And we um, specifically focused on transplant characteristics of the patients as to why they got transplanted, what uh, diseases and what kind of regimens did they undergo before the transplant. And then we looked at ICU characteristics of the patients, specifically looking at... Uh, the use of uh, mechanical ventilation, renal support, inotrope, vasopressor use, and also 
you know, the ICU length of stay and how many times they require admission to the intensive care unit following their transplant. And uh, the outcome we really wanted to focus on was survival. And so we looked at survival at intensive care unit discharge, and then we looked at survival uh, about 30 days out following the last ICU discharge for a given patient, 100 days of long-term follow-up. And what did you find when you looked at your cohort of patients? So uh, we had, in our data set, we ended up with 155 patients who accounted for uh, 319 admissions over the six-year period. These 155 patients were representative of 35% of the patients undergoing stem cell transplant at our center during this period. And uh, of these patients, majority of the patients who needed intensive care were those that had undergone allogeneic transplant. That is, they received uh, their stem cells from another person. And of those, the majority of patients were those who underwent transplant for non-malignant disorders such as bone marrow failure or immune disorders. And uh, a small subset was also malignant patients who underwent uh, stem cell transfer malignancies. Our overall survival for these 155 patients was 63%. Of the, if we looked at the admissions as the whole, which obviously many patients had multiple admissions, 82% of admissions who were admitted to the intensive care unit following stem cell transplant survived. And furthermore, as we tracked these patients out, 51% were still alive at 100 days, and 45% were alive at a follow-up, median follow-up for over two years. And uh, the shortest follow-up we had in our study was six months, and the longest follow-up was nearly up to five to six years. And our observation was that uh, our outcomes for survival in our patients were uh, improved compared to prior data sets and prior published data, even though R was the largest data set and uh, also was uh, sort of skewed because we had a lot of patients who underwent transplant for immunodeficiencies, and that by in itself is a high-risk group. Other observation was that most of the patients who survived the ICU and were alive at about 100 days following their last ICU discharge, uh, that they tended to stay alive and did not uh, didn't succumb to any other illness. So it seems to be that most of the mortality that occurs in these patients once they come to the ICU is either in the intensive care unit or soon after discharge from the intensive care unit. Uh, the odds of survival um, were not uh, were much higher for patients who did not need mechanical ventilation, renal support. Uh, which is um, which is obvious. Yeah, not surprising. And that is not surprising at all. Obviously, if you didn't have organ failure, you did better. So that <laughs> was true for our patients, obviously. Uh, what we did notice, and no study has ever shown this before, is that each prior admission decreased the odds of BICU uh, survival significantly. So I think that uh, that's an important clinical take-home talking to families. If a patient keeps on coming back and the ICU repeatedly, then their odds of surviving each subsequent ICU get uh, to be slimmer and slimmer. Uh, ICU length of stay did not appear to affect the odds of survival. I'm not certain as to why that was, but I think that 
that maybe there's something that we found and whether it means anything, I don't know. So those were the major findings. And this, uh, the other specific thing that we wanted to look at was look at patients who required mechanical ventilation. And in our cohort, 57% uh, of the patients uh, required mechanical ventilation. And of these, 58% uh, of the admissions survived PSU discharge and translated to about 40% of patients who required ventilation during any admission over those six years ended up surviving their ICU stay. And nearly 34% were alive in 100 days. So I think that's an important finding for clinicians caring for these patients that in a recent data set that about no matter how many admissions you've had over a couple of years following your transfer, most of these patients got into trouble within the first year of their transplant, that 40% of them did end up surviving the ICU. Which is better than, than previously Better than what's been reported in the 90s and all where I think there was speculation as to whether these patients would even survive if they were intubated. So that brought into question whether you should be intubating them at all. And so you had a 40% survival in your intubated patients. So Yes, we did, which is better than what people uh, have always thought. Right. It's not. It's nowhere close to what we see for our other patients, but this is sure. a very high-risk cohort of patients. Right. So, but there is still uh, survival because most of these patients who undergo bone marrow transplantation are going to die if they don't have the bone marrow transplant for the underlying disease process. Right. So I still think that, uh, so for them, any survival is always a positive thing. So I think for ventilated patients in the ICU, following stem cell transplant, a 40% survival, I think, is important. I, I was interested, as I read your paper, that the patients with non-malignant disorders had a higher mortality than those who had malignancies for which they were transplanted. Would you like to comment on that finding? Off the bat, I would say that we can't really say why this was the case. We are unclear as to why patients who had transplants for non-malignant disorders did worse. But it's, I'm going to have to speculate here because I've discussed this with my bone marrow transplant colleagues and my ICU colleagues, uh, and nobody has a good answer. But I think one reason may be that uh, our patient population at Cincinnati, specifically the immunodeficiency patients that we have, uh, tend to have a larger proportion of patients who have HLH or hemophagocytic lymphocytosis, which in itself is a very uh, disease with very bad outcomes. So I think these patients who have immunodeficiencies and also patients specifically who have HLH-like processes uh, tend to have had uh, numerous illnesses prior to getting to their transplant, and they all tend to have sustained some element of organ injury prior to transplant. So I, I could speculate that these patients, once they go through the transplant process, and if after that they get critically ill, uh, their organs have already sustained damage prior to transplant, and then what happens after transplant also makes them even worse. And in addition, a lot of these patients have to be on steroids, especially the HLH patients. The other immunodeficiency patients, they may not be on steroids, but they, they've been at risk for all sorts of infections prior to their transplant. So all these processes in the pre-transplant period then set them up for uh, a more complicated course post-transplant when they develop organ failure. And I assume 
that that could be one reason why these patients tend to do worse. However, there's no way our current data can answer that question. That's that's of a lot of interest to us specifically because we are finding that our bone marrow transplant uh, center is doing more and more transplants for patients with immunodeficiencies, and they're getting patients from across the country and the world for these processes because mm-hmm. other transplant centers are not uh, willing to take on these high-risk cases. Mm-hmm. Hence, uh, they tend to form the bulk of our patients who require critical care and develop uh, multi-organ failure. So it's a special interest to us as to why these patients do worse. So over these years that you did this study, the total number of stem cell transplants you did increased, but the number of patients going to the PICU increased more markedly, so a higher percentage of your transplant patients ended up in the PICU. Um, it sounds to me from what you were just saying that some of that increase in PICU patients' admissions might be related to um, tra- your transplanting more uh, HLH or um, immunodeficiency patients. Do you think that's the case? I think what's happening is that uh, it's a cumulative effect because, say, it by 2009 we would have been in our study, we looked at patients. So, say for example, we looked at fiscal year 2009. Uh, they may the number of admissions seems to be higher as a proportion of the total number of stem cell transplants that year because we are actually have patients from the prior five years who are forming the cohort that is keeps on coming back to the ICU. Mm-hmm. So, I think that uh, a lot of these patients were uh, repeat admissions coming back. Uh, multiple times. So that's why I think the ICU numbers tend to look uh, higher than, uh, as a proportion higher than what number of stem cell transplants were going on uh, over the same period. So I think it's just a cumulative effect of mm-hmm. multiple transplants in the prior years and those patients just keep on coming back. Uh, we had about uh, 30% of our patients needed uh, more than two admissions to the intensive care unit. So that's uh, nearly a third of our patients came back more than twice, mm-hmm. which is not, which in our current practice we find that pretty common, uh, happening pretty commonly. We see the same patient over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the case. I think that effect of multiple admissions just sort of makes the numbers towards the latter part of the study appear to be higher. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't that think makes they were sense. Um, I don't think that um, we have really lowered the threshold for transferring a patient to the intensive care unit. At our center, we transfer any patient who needs uh, any form of hemodynamic support or any form of uh, either non-invasive or invasive ventilatory support or renal support. And generally, those tend to be the uh, reasons why they come. Other than that, the only other reasons we transfer patients in are encephalopathy, seizures, and uh, bleeding, and occasionally also fluid overload. So those are the big reasons. So I don't think we really lowered the bar. And our PRISM scores over the course of the study sort of remained pretty stable. The median PRISM score for the cohort was 8, which has sort of been pretty uh, uh, pretty much the same across the course of the study, especially towards the latter half of the study. So I don't think we really lowered the acuity of the patients that we are admitting, though um, I think with the safety culture prevalent, these days in um, medical centers, I think there is a tendency to transfer patients sooner or when they or earlier mm-hmm. when they start to have signs of worsening organ failure. I agree. 
Um, what do you think contributed to your improved outcomes compared to prior studies in the literature and prior series? So I think that um, our study in no way can answer that question as to what uh, led to these improved outcomes, especially for a higher risk uh, cohort of transplant patients. We feel that uh, we did change certain practices and there's no way we could measure the effect of these practices. But one thing that has that we use at our institution is a very uh, uh, multidisciplinary approach to the care of the stem cell transplant patient in the intensive care unit and specifically the two teams that are very closely involved and essentially co-manage these patients are uh, the pediatric intensivists and the the bone marrow transplant doctors. And then we get subspecialist help uh, very early on I think the subspecialists we use the most are nephrologists. So I think it's uh, the effect of these uh, changes in the way we manage these patients. And also I think that the bone marrow transplant uh, physicians have become more cognizant about uh, how they do the transplant process and how they've, they've gotten better with their transplant process as a whole. So we end up getting a patient who may not essentially have the same element of disease burden as they did maybe 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So they have better drugs and better conditioning regimens and um, better supportive care and better access to blood products and everything else. And I think caring for central lines is better and everything. So it's very hard to know what exactly, what single intervention changed uh, our outcomes or made our outcomes better or than prior studies. But I think it's these little small little increments in each aspect of the care of these patients. And especially we feel the really uh, approach to these patients from a multidisciplinary standpoint with both the stem cell transplant doctors and us uh, really rounding together and discussing these patients on a daily basis may have contributed to some of the improved outcomes. But in no way can this paper uh, discern what was the whether there was a single factor which uh, led to improved outcomes. Yeah, I'm, I I can't imagine that there's a single factor, but um, I think over the past five to ten years, there has been an increasing um, attention paid across all of critical care and pediatric critical care, of course, included on the multidisciplinary uh, team approach and the importance of communicating across teams. So I I agree with your speculation that that the um, team approach to the management of these patients was probably an, one important contributing factor. Yeah, I do think that these this is a special cohort of patients, just as uh, patients who undergo cardiac surgery is a special cohort of patients. This is a special cohort of patients who has their who have their own specific sets of morbidities, which the care team has to be very aware of. And I mean everybody, right from the bedside RN to the uh, pharmacists, mm-hmm. to the physicians, mm-hmm. and uh, to the subspecialists. Another thing at Cincinnati that we are very uh, aggressive with these patients early on. So when we get a patient who's sick, we don't really try and uh, we don't hold back with uh, being very aggressive about mechanical ventilation, uh, renal support, using uh, whatever new novel agents are available and uh, really being very aggressive up front when these patients start to develop organ failure rather than 
wait for them to have a fluid multi-organ failure before we act. So I think that may be another reason because we tend to be pretty aggressive with our approach to these patients right from the time they come into the unit up front and not hold back. And I think that's because I think some of it is just because we communicate so well. I think we are all on the same page about uh, being aggressive so there's no holding back mm-hmm. when a patient gets sick. So what do you think the implications are of your study for the care of stem cell transplant patients um, who are admitted to the PICU, either to your PICU or to other PICUs? So I think the the most important thing is that for these patients, what was true in the 90s is not necessarily true in the uh, in the late 2010s. I think that uh, there is hope for these patients to survive even uh, terrible uh, episodes of critical illness. And uh, so I I feel that physicians caring for these patients uh, should uh, be aggressive and uh, use a multidisciplinary approach specifically along with the bone marrow transplant doctors and have them be an integral part of the team in the intensive care unit. And another subspecialty that we rely on a lot is nephrology because of initiation of early renal support because all these patients have some element of renal injury when they come in. So I think it's uh, what this data offers is some hope that though these patients tend to do much worse than other patients, a certain percentage of them can still make it through their stays in the ICU with organ failure. And for patients who otherwise would not have survived without a transplant. Getting a transplant is a big thing. And then even if they were to come to the ICU, they can survive. And as I've said, we've had over about 40 to 45% surviving way past uh, a year or two following the last ICU admission. So I think it's just encouraging to see that uh, maybe there are things that we are doing in the pediatric ICU which may be helpful to these patients. So I don't think it's all... um, death and doom for a bone marrow transplant patient if they were to get critically ill with respiratory failure or acute kidney injury. So I think it's just the hope and this data sort of would, uh, I think, should reassure physicians caring for these patients that there is hope and we can make them get through their critical illness. I think that's a very important point and um, I'm sure your families are very happy to hear that too, that um, you're going to be aggressive and there is hope. Do you have any further comments you'd like to make? No, I think that going uh, to looking to the future, um, I can speak to what we think of uh, these patients at our center. I think we have a very uh, aggressive approach, and I think that's something that I would encourage all uh, intensivists who care for these patients to have because there's really nothing to lose from a family standpoint. This kid would have not made it anyways if they hadn't gotten transplants. So I think we owe it to those families to help them get through these illnesses and be aggressive. I also feel that uh, these patients maybe, not maybe, are different than our regular general ICU patients who come with uh, critical illness from out in the community. These patients have significant com- comorbidities that affect uh, a multitude of their organs, right from their brains, their hearts, lungs, GI tract. So I think that these patients 
I think going forward, we have to be smarter about how we care for them because I don't think that it's a one-size-fits-all strategy. So the way you ventilate or when you initiate renal support for a patient who comes in with septic shock who's otherwise healthy versus a kid who's had a bone marrow transplant who comes in with septic shock, I'm not certain as to whether we can treat all these patients the same. And I think that we have to get smarter about treating these patients uh, maybe differently, and but I don't know how to treat them differently as of now, but I think that's what we are striving to try to figure out what is it that makes them different and how can we care for them during the critical illness uh, that would help them, which necessarily may not be applicable to all other patients who come to the ICU. I think so that's uh, one thing that at least we're trying to figure out as to why these patients are different and how can we in the ICU do things to help these patients, which may not actually be a big deal for other patients. The second thing is, I think, is outcomes to figure out early on whether we can predict what the outcome is going to be for the ICU stay, because that would allow us to, if we can develop scoring systems or some way of knowing which patients in this cohort are really going to make it and which patients are not going to make it, to try and figure out if we had a high-risk therapy, for example, should we be using it in a patient or not? Mm-hmm. The patient, the odds are that he, he or she is not going to make it, then it may be worth the risk or at least presenting the risk to the family that, you know, we have a novel therapy. It's not without risk. But so I think we just have to get smarter about how we care for these patients and try to figure out which ones are going to do badly and the ones that are not going to do badly and try to tailor our therapies to... Uh, their potential outcome. Thank you very much for sharing your experience and your perspective with us today, Ranjit. You're very welcome. Thank you. We have been talking today with Dr. Ranjit S. Shima from Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, discussing the article, Improved Outcomes for Stem Cell Transplant Recipients Requiring Pediatric Intensive Care, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in November 2012. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Experience the true beauty of the Caribbean at SCCM's 42nd Critical Care Congress to be held January 19th to 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. From the breathtaking sunsets and shimmering beaches to the ancient caves and cool mountainous subtropical rainforests, Puerto Rico provides a vast canvas of diverse environments and unrivaled natural wonders. Surrender to the charm of island life at the 2013 Congress, where more than 4,000 critical care professionals will come together to advance the mission of providing the best possible care to critically ill and injured patients. Register today at www.sccm.org congress. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children.
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.